Hi, and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm Christina Beckhold-Russ. I cover the UK and Europe for Samsung Next. Over the next several months, we'll be sharing interviews recorded at this year's Tech Open Air Conference in Berlin, where some of today's leading minds in technology gathered in early July. Each week, we'll highlight the human stories behind tomorrow's most groundbreaking innovations. Up next, you'll hear from Erica Chang, the founder of Ethics and Entrepreneurship, a nonprofit developing resources and training for future tech leaders. In conversation with Alex Longer of Business Punk, Erica discusses how her experience at Theranos has led her to promote ethical practices in the tech industry. Erica was one of the whistleblowers that prevented Theranos from processing patient samples with faulty technology by reporting to regulators. Thank you for being here, Erica. Really great. It says on, on your LinkedIn profile that you're an advisor for Betatron, but of course you there's a different story to your life, and you've also been introduced here as a whistleblower at Terranos. Yeah. Uh, so could you tell me a bit about the story about how you became a whistleblower? How I became a whistleblower? Um, by accident. Right. <laughs> Didn't plan that to happen. So essentially, I um, the first job that I had entered into out of university was for Theranos. And I had been working for the company in total for about seven months and noticed that there were a lot of red flags and a lot of problems going on um, within the company, specifically that they were testing on patients with a product that was extremely underdeveloped and shouldn't have been used to, to test on patients. Um, so it was kind of a, a long journey, but eventually I had come forward and reported them to a regulatory agency that stopped them from continuing to process patient samples. Yeah. And, and how did you find out about the faulty product? Um, so I had started working uh, in the research and development lab. So there I was kind of working hands-on with the science and the technology and the medical device and mm. all the bio, uh, you know, bioassays, the um, kind of blood test. Mm. And when we were running these different validation studies uh, to see if it was accurate or if it was precise, um, one, I noticed that everything was super variable. The data was super messy. We weren't ever getting an accurate read of, say, mm. you know, I test you for vitamin D. I have a sample. I know it's like five micro uh, liters of vitamin D, and um, uh, it's coming out like 16. And then I run it again, and it's coming out like 19. And it, mm -hmm. then I'm running it again, and it's one. Um, so that's kind of when I noticed, okay, things are a bit wonky here, but you're in research and development. It's not that big of a deal. You're here to fix it. Uh, but then kind of progressing on, people were kind of doctoring the data to make it be that five microliters. And that yeah. was very strange. And then I was being asked to sort of test patients with this test that I saw so starkly not working while I was in research and development. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of the big red flag. Did you ever feel the need to talk to people there about your findings or yeah. before you came out with it? Yeah. So I, you know, I was very young. When I started working for this company, it was my first job out of college. And I kind of uh, generally have a beginner's mind with everything uh, that I do and always think that any question is a good question. Uh, so I was constantly talking to every department like, is this right? Is this OK? You know, should we be manipulating outliers like this? Is it OK that we're testing on patients with a laboratory developed test? Right. And not telling them and notifying them. So 
uh, is it okay that we're having these types of errors? And I would set up like infrastructure within the company to see how many errors we were having. Mm -hmm. I was very, very vocal with many different departments about, you know, I don't know if this is right. Can you, you know, based on your expertise and the fact that you've worked here for a really long time and, and worked in biotech and industry or in hospitals for a long time, do you think that this is okay? And the answers you got were, it's okay because we like our jobs. We want to keep our jobs. We it, we believe in a product that maybe isn't far along enough, but we're on the right track. It, yeah, it was kind of a bell curve of, of different things. And it depend on you know the tenure of the company, the sort of position that that person was in, uh, both professionally and personally, and sort of the department they were in, I guess. So some people were like, yeah, it's kind of messed up. We see it's messed up shrug and yeah. and that's just kind of the way things go here um there was the also the kind of mentality of a lot of people don't realize but we had a lot of people who are from overseas mm -hmm. so for them they're like okay if i don't work for this company i have to go back to india um and that was kind of overhanging them in the way that they dealt and approach working within the company a lot of people mm -hmm. had kids mm -hmm. they had families that they needed to support um And so they were kind of like, okay, this is my job. These are the things that I needed to do. This is what I was hired for. Um, a lot of people left as well. So there's very, very high turnover. Very few people. It was like a badge of honor if you stayed longer than a year, which is mm -hmm. crazy to think, um, especially for a biotech company where you need that kind of consistency and longevity over time to develop these technologies. But um It was kind of a wide range. Some people were just sort of oblivious and they were so enamored with Elizabeth Holmes and what she was doing and the vision uh, that that it was kind of like blinders were put up onto the sort of chaos that was surrounding you. Did you feel that there were others that were kept up at night the same way you were probably? Yeah. So there were a group of us that sort of came forward and whistle blew in our own ways, right? I'm more reported for being the person that had reported to a regulatory agency and one of the few people that had done that. There is the possibility. And the thing about this is because we all signed NDAs, we were all so scared of talking to one another. We all have a very clear idea of who this group of people is, especially this initial, there's about probably about eight of us. Um, but there were people who had sort of come forward and, and talked about the company uh, and mm -hmm. what was going on. I think prior to about 2012, 2013, no one said anything because the company was in the research and development phase. Um, so, you know, you're, you're playing in the lab. It's not that big of a deal, but it wasn't until about 2012, 2013, right around the time I joined that we were actually launching the products onto patients where the perspective and, and the kind of terms of, of what you're doing, the, the, the stakes are so much higher at that point because you're actually testing on patients. Yeah. And, and, and during those seven months at the, at the company or, um, how did this affect your private life or is there any, because it didn't exist. Didn't no, uh, <laughs> I, um, how did that affect you? I worked like 16 hour days. Uh, what did I do? I worked a lot. I worked a lot. I, I, I lived in Oakland and commuted to Palo Alto so that took at least like two to four hours of my day, just getting to and from work. Um, and yeah, I just worked all the time. And you're in healthcare, so you frequently have to work weekends and holidays because you need the operation to run 24-7. But I was just working all the time. Mm -hmm. And especially with the things that you found out after a couple of weeks or months even, did you ever feel like quitting right away or just walking out and never coming back? I 
really, even working in the company and seeing so many mistakes when I worked in research and development, I thought I was going to spend the next 10 years working in that company. I was so committed to that vision. I really believed in what we were trying to build. And I really, you know, was motivated to, to sort of build point of care diagnostics Mm and, and, and see the, the vision come true. It may have not taken the manifestation that she had first set out, but, um, yeah, I had anticipated within those first two months or something. I was like, wow, you got really lucky. This is sort of a good fit for you and your personality and the things that you aspire to do in your life. Um, but you know, when you have these, these, these moments where your fundamental value, and in my case, it's like preventing suffering amongst people in general and, and, and to provide better patient care and to make that more affordable and accessible to communities that otherwise can't afford it. When those things are just so starkly violated, there mm. was no way I, I could stay there. So you never had the t- temptation of uh, being part of covering it up because you were com- committed to the product, you were committed to the idea. Uh, I mean, I think some of the inner turmoil for me and why like now I'm in the sort of limelight of doing this sort of thing, but yeah. I was still part of this thing, right? This thing that I didn't agree with that there were still, no one talks about this, but there's still like hundreds of thousands of patients whose stories have largely gone untold through this whole Theranos saga of what happened to them. Mm-hmm. You know, what was the consequence of the fact that we were resulting out these patient mm-hmm. results? And and I was still a part of, of that storyline. So there's still a lot of inner conflict and turmoil, even though being this person who maybe shut it down, I was still part of that preliminary process before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and during that time, and during your findings there, during your experience there, um, were there, was there like a list of bullet points in your head to say, okay, we have to change everything. We have to change entrepreneurship. We have to decide on a new code of ethics, so to speak, for entrepreneurs. Was that something that you experienced there? Was, has it always been in the back of your head? I mean, before? I think for me, it's, it, you know, this conversation of now embedding ethics within the entrepreneurial community. Um, like it's always, I, I've just always thought it was important, right? For for me, I, I wasn't an entrepreneur. Like I wasn't one of these stories of, you know, someone who I, I used to sell candy on the side of the road and, and made a bunch of money because I was born to be an entrepreneur. I mean, I worked when I was younger, but that was because I was poor and needed to make money to spend things, but not because I was entrepreneurial. Um <laughs> And, and, you know, I really saw business as this opportunity to make a big impact into people's lives, right? It was this really great kind of process where you could create sustainable organizations, you could build pe- products that people really wanted and needed. And, you know, I wanted to sort of align with that same front of like the reason I went into business, because this is the way that I thought I could affect society in a positive way. And when you're now part of this system and this infrastructure of starting these startups and seeing so many cases of them kind of like veering off and one claiming to want to change the world, but actually in action causing all these problems, this is what sort of ethics has just been sort of embedded in in, in my personality and mm. in who I am. Uh, but that kind of mobilized me to say, okay, no, 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 no. We're kind of veering in a very wrong direction with the way we're building these companies, the products that we're building, how we're building the organizations that we're making. And someone needs to step in and say, okay, we need to do this differently. Mm-hmm. You're always going to have these bad actors, these sort of weird cases. But generally, if we are a community that claims to wanting to be to, to change the world and make a difference and benefit humanity. Let's align ourselves together and, and actually committed to, to that process. Yeah. And nowadays, like every, every startup 
starting out right now, um, always uses the word sustainable, uses the word green tech in some way or other. What's a good filter, so to speak, to see if, if they're serious about it, if they're not serious about it, if they just use the buzzwords? Yeah. Like, what, what's your process on, on, on checking out? I mean, I think talking to people about it and paying attention for the people who provide criticism is really important. I mean, it's so specific on certain cases for the sustainability case, right? Like talk to people that are going to just try and poke holes and say, is this actually sustainable? What could you be doing better? You know, not only taking your opinion of saying, like, I identify with this thing, but also getting other people to sort of confirm and and check and see if you're sort of committing to this vision that that you're mm -hmm. promoting and marketing at least. And at um, at Betatron, like what, what's the process there? Like how do you go about that? So Betatron, this was a really you know you never plan kind of where you're going to end up in life, but I was really interested in Asia. I was interested in what was going on in the biotech industry in China, and I'm half Hong Kongese, so I landed in Hong Kong to start with. And started working in tech investment. So most of what I'd been doing before was more on the science side of building products. And so this was the first time of like, okay, well, how do people fund these, these products? Effectively, we do general tech investments. So a lot of what they were trying to do was sort of fill the gap of in, in Asia, what you see are a lot of investment going on at the seed stage and a, a later stage, but not sort of the intermediary. And really that going over that chasm and that hump to later stage, you need people who are willing to fund and support these entrepreneurs through that process. So we did a lot of general tech investment. We were sector agnostic and um, we're trying to just get these very seed stage entrepreneurs to sort of building these bigger companies in Hong Kong and, and eventually all throughout um, Asia. So mainland China, Southeast Asia, um, mostly, and uh, Hong Kong, of course, and Taiwan. And from your personal experience in the last couple of years, um, what are you looking for in, in an entrepreneur that would be funding worthy, so to speak? It can really range, right? It, and it really depends. I think the difference with Asia versus with the U.S., It really depends on what market they're serving as well, because there is so much diversity within the region. Mm -hmm. And for Asia and Hong Kong specifically, you want someone with a lot of domain expertise. Um, you don't necessarily need uh, someone who's a very good software engineer because you can build out software engineering teams really quickly mm -hmm. uh, and at scale and very affordably. Uh, but you need someone who really knows what their industry and sector is and also is very adaptable and very flexible and aware of the fact that things change and move so fast and the pace and competition is so fierce all throughout Asia. So those are kind of generally the factors we look for. Okay. And um, maybe coming back to Theranos, I mean, this has been told in a major way now, yeah. just recently. Uh, did you did you ever think this would be like a pop culture phenomenon no. that people all over the world would be talking about and just binging it uh, on the weekends? No, okay. no, it, ha it, <laughs> it has been wild, yeah. right? I really thought this would be just something that like, oh, this this unfortunate case that happened in the Silicon Valley and There are many fraud cases and scandals that happen actually for much bigger tickets. If you go on the SEC's website, you're like, holy crap, right? Like mm. these people defrauded, you know, billions of dollars and it, no one hears about it. But yeah, I didn't anticipate that it would be such a big case and that it would, you know, the first time I was sitting in Hong Kong, which I was pretty isolated from what's going on in the valley and the rest of the world and saw bad blood. Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, this is wild, mm -hmm. right? Like... 
I can't believe it's made it all the way over here. Um, yeah. yeah. But do you have an explanation for that? Is it because of the protagonist? Is it because of the, uh, is it because it's, it's such a very recent example of fraud? Yeah. Take us actually too, too big to fail or too good to fail. I mean, it has like the quintessential, like perfect story arc, right? It has sort of, you have this heroine, at least you think they're a heroine and who's sort of hyped up in this really incredible way. Not only that, but the vision was so strong. Like people wanted it to work they wanted elizabeth holmes to succeed they wanted to see what seemed to be like this underdog to sort of champion uh you know silicon valley to champion healthcare to that 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 there was some sort of like hope in the world that you know technology was going to make the world a better place and so it was just you know you're at the height everything seems beautiful and perfect and like rainbows and butterflies And then actually, no, that's not the case. It's this big, unfortunate, it's like all built on this house of cards. And then you have that decline and the chaos and madness and and sort of downfall of the scenario. And So it was predisposed for Netflix. And uh -huh. for, I was, guess so. Yeah, okay. yeah unfortunately. Actually, okay. um, and, and just the depth of the deceit and the lies and the yeah. bizarreness like it was so there's so many things that went on like you can't even you couldn't even write that in fiction because people would find it too absurd <laughs> right? you there'd be too many logic holes yeah in they'd be like really okay. no this is this is <laughs> this couldn't be true um so maybe that's why it's been successful i think the media has a role to play right because she was such in the limelight right to be on the cover of fortune and forbes mm. and everything and then have to go back and say whoops let's just take that off the table and shelf that yeah. you know this is <laughs> a hard thing to do um And and I think also it was very relatable to a certain degree to set out to do something and it not quite go as planned and to see like the worst possible scenario of something like that. Uh, and, and also it was kind of I think there was a lot of dissenting views of what was going on in the Silicon Valley, but there was no kind of poster child or like signal to show And really voice out like, yeah, there's a whole as much as we paint this very beautiful story of what's going on here, actually underlying there's a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. And this was really that kind of like canary in the coal mine. With the current project, I mean, you're you're trying to weed out all these these deep sitting problems. That's why maybe for a last question, like, what, what would you hope that the world, the tech world, is talking about in ten years? Yeah, I you know I think. Despite these big scandals happening, despite there's sort of these unfortunate things, I, I, I hope that, you know, it's not like a lost cause, right? It's it, that there are still great things about building, like technology is at this really interesting place. And I think for most people, when they look at the way it's transformed their lives, it has been in a beneficial way. So if we could sort of just, hopefully we'll, we'll kind of like... <laughs> get to a point where, you know, people say, you know, yeah, I want to build companies that are actually making a difference, that are improving the lives of myself, my communities, and, and maybe more vulnerable populations that one another, you know, that we need to serve, frankly. Yeah. You know, I would just hope to, to see things sort of move towards progress and towards a sort of better situation and not have this sort of sense of defeat and fatalism that, okay, if there is problems and because we're seeing so much volatility within our world and so much rapid change that we don't really know how to reconcile with that we kind of just gave up. Okay. I hope that there were a lot of champions who came forward and say, okay, yeah, things are kind of a mess right now, but 
let's let's make this work. Let's let's try and try and get things back on track. So hopefully we're Hope on that. We can path. make it work. Yeah. All the hopefully. best. All the best thank with the project. Yeah. Thank you for the conversation. Um, we actually maybe we have time for one question. So, I guess my question is kind of about trying to connect the work that you're engaged in now yeah. to um, whether or not if you are successful, you would prevent another Elizabeth Holmes from yeah. doing what she did. Yeah. I think that's one of the struggles for us is to be like, how do we apply ourselves given the lessons that we learned, given that, as you say, like these types of folks are still going to be out there. Yeah. So with ethics and entrepreneurship, right, we're trying to figure out how can we create ethical culture within organizations and how can we make sure that not only, you know, you're always going to have these bad actors. You're going to have people like Elizabeth Holmes. You're going to have con men like um, uh, Bernie Madoff and, and these types of people. But really, these people are kind of enabled by a whole bigger population of people, of workers and supporters or dissenters or whatever else. So now what we're trying to do is think about, okay, so, you know, I am a tech founder. I want to commit to ethical culture. That's very easy, right? I, how can I sort of assess where my company is going from being a, a two-person company to a 300-person company? And how do I make sure that we're staying on track with the sort of development of our organization? That's easy, right? Contacting these founders and getting them to say, I want to commit to an ethical culture. What do I need to do that? First step. Then there are other people who are tech workers and tech workers can say, hey, I'm noticing these problems with my organization. Can I, one, go up to my founder and say like, hey, we're having problems. Let's get this fixed. If we have this ethos of wanting to make a difference, wanting to change the world, wanting to act ethically, let's change this bringing people in to sort of assess and figure out what interventions need to be happen or to go externally and say, you know, Hey, these people are doing bad things. Like we, we need to mobilize more people to speak out and basically call out when they see injustices, when they see problems, when they see things that could be potentially detrimental to society and that how to manage the fear of, of, of going through that process and realizing that this is actually for the benefit of not only themselves, but for, you know, their organization and potentially for society at whole. Erica, thanks a lot for sharing your, your great story and amazing story. And I think there aren't many people that can tell a similar story. So I think there are only two, probably Snowden and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> this, yeah, it's yeah. funny. Both Snowden and I both lived in Hong Kong after, <laughs> <laughs> after everything that went down. So that's hilarious. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening to What's Next. We're currently releasing a new episode every week from this year's Tech Open Air Conference in Berlin. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com forward slash podcast. I'm your host, Christina Beckhold-Russ. This episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King, Laura Flynn, and Eliza Lambert with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we would love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next or send us an email, podcast at samsungnext.com. Cheers.